song always gets me when it says, I can't see it, but you're still working. I don't feel it, but you're still working. Amen. Our God is a, may, a way maker. Good morning, everybody. My name is Ben. I'm the lead pastor here. If you're our guest today, I want to welcome you again. We're glad you can be with us. Um, if you want to grab your Bibles or your phones, your tablets, whatever you got, we're going to be in Isaiah today. Isaiah chapter 5, beginning a new series in the book of Isaiah this fall. Today is the first day. I will explain in a moment why we are in chapter 5 and not chapter 1. Uh, but we will be looking at chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. As you're turning there, I just want to encourage you, if you're new around here or have, have been coming for a little while and want to know more about our church, we have, as you heard in the announcements, a new members class coming up uh, two weeks from today. So August 29th, right after church, we have child care and lunch. It's a great time to learn more about who we are. You don't have to become a member at the end of it, but it really is uh, informative about uh, our church and what we believe and what our mission and vision are and, and how you can get involved. So we would love for you to sign up for that if you're able to come that day and join us. It'd be great to have you. Isaiah chapter 5, if you're there, say amen. amen. Hear the reading, of God, or the reading of God's Word beginning in verse 1. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste and it shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, and behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to tag our text today, the King's Vineyard. The King's Vineyard. Let's pray before we begin. Father, thank you uh, that you are the King. You are the owner. You are the creator and maker of us, your vineyard. And so, Lord, as we come to your word today, we are asking that you would uh, take care of us, that you would do the work in us that only you can do as the one who cares for his vineyard. And so we pray that you would till up the soil and the ground and that you would plant and grow fruit that would flourish in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives, our communities, our families, all around God. We would look back and we would say, it was you who did your work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, there was a man named Joshua Bell who emerged from the D.C. metro, and uh, he looked like he was just kind of a regular guy. He had a long sleeve shirt, a, a baseball cap, and, and he kind of positioned himself off in the corner as all these people were walking by. He was standing next to a trash can, 
didn't look like anything special. He, he was carrying a case, and inside the case had a violin. So he opens up the case, he puts the case on the ground, he pulls out the violin and takes out some change from his pocket, throws some loose change in there as kind of some seed money, and he begins to play his violin. And Joshua Bell begins to play Mozart in the D.C. Metro. Thousands of people are walking by. He's there for about 45 minutes to an hour, and, and this was 2007. And, and it was January, it was cold, and people were kind of rushing by, and they weren't really paying attention. No one was paying attention because if they were, they would have noticed who he was. They would have noticed that Joshua Bell is a world-renowned violinist, and that the, the violin that he was playing, that he was carrying in that case, was a Stradivarius, which was very rare, worth about $3 million, playing right here in the D.C. Metro. And as he's playing Mozart and, and this beautiful music is going, and, and maybe just a handful of people stopped. You can actually watch it on YouTube. Just a handful of people stopped. One, one lady stopped and she just sat there for a few moments because she, she caught a glimpse of the beauty. But most people just kept walking. Most people weren't paying attention at all. They, they weren't listening. They were on to their next thing. And, and you go back and you look, and it was actually a, a project, an, a, an experiment that was put together by a few journalists who wanted to see if context would change perception. And, and they were looking to see if, if the context was changed and, and you know, there, it was just kind of a busy moment and, and it was an inconvenient time and no one really knew who he was, he wasn't dressed professionally, if that would change people's perception of beauty or if beauty would transcend that. And it turns out, they got their answer. Just three days before that experiment, he had played at the Boston Symphony Hall and sold out for hundreds of dollars per ticket. That day, he got $27 in his violin case, and I'm sure most of it came out of his pocket. No one noticed. He went largely unheard, unlistened to. He, no one cared. And I tell you that to say, it's a little bit like the prophets in the Old Testament. That the prophets in the Old Testament are a little bit like Joshua Bell that day where they're playing this beautiful music that everyone should appreciate, that, that should transcend our context, but most people aren't listening. I mean, in fact, if most of us, if you're honest, if you've been in the church a while, it, it might even be a little hard to name the prophets. They're, they're the books in the Bible that we don't really pay attention to. They're at the end of the Old Testament, and by the time you get there from Genesis, you're like, oh, let's get to the New Testament. We're, we're, we're needing something that will encourage me or a little easier to understand. And, and I get it. The New Testament is easier to understand. It's, it's often more straightforward. And, and so to get to the prophets is, is a little bit difficult. And, and it often goes unheard because the prophets are also very strange. They're, they're a little odd. They're, they're a little offbeat. The message they give, you give gets a little bit in your, in your business. And so they go unheard. And Isaiah is no uh, exception to that. He, he is often called the prince of the prophets and still is not listened to very often. And again, it's understandable. Isaiah is a huge book. We're, we're actually going to spend the, the next 19 weeks in Isaiah, and we're not going to scratch the surface, in my opinion, because there's 66 chapters in Isaiah. We could spend the next five years in Isaiah if we wanted to. There's so much material. It's often hard to understand what's being said 
And so today, as we start this new series, I want us to slow down for the next 19 weeks as best we can and try to listen to the beautiful music that Isaiah is giving us, that transcends his time into our time and has a beautiful message. And so what, what is the context as we begin this journey? What, what is the context around Isaiah's message? Well, it, it's actually pretty broad, but it begins in the, in the first part of the book where, if you didn't know this about Israel, but at this time they were split in two kingdoms. you got the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom at the time is being pressured by this great power, this superpower called the Assyrians. And the Assyrians are pressing in on the northern kingdom. And so the northern kingdom is pressured and, and stressed and, and there's suffering going on and they're not sure if it's going to turn into war. And, and so there's a lot going on in the north that, that affected the way the south was, was happening. So in the south, because of the, the drama in the north, everything was going well. In fact, people were, were deciding not to do business with the north because no one wants to do business during wartime. So they're coming to the south and selling all their goods and business is doing great and things are flourishing, the economy's booming. It was actually a time of great prosperity and comfort and security in the south. And so the south is called Judah. And so Isaiah is prophesying primarily to Judah, but you'll hear him as we go through the book kind of mention the northern kingdom from time to time. And so here is the context. He, he is speaking to a people where everything seems to be thriving. They see what's happening and they see fruit. But Isaiah sees what's happening and he sees failure. You see it? Isaiah sees the same situation, and he sees failure. In fact, he sees danger coming. And just like Joshua Bell, very few are listening. He's playing this music, trying to warn people, trying to let them know, and no one's listening. In fact, God would tell him later in the book that no one's going to listen, but I'm still going to send you. That's a great calling, right? You're going to go preach your whole life, and no one's going to listen, and then you're going to die. That's Isaiah's calling. We'll get to that in a minute. But for now, he, he opens up with these five chapters to kind of set the tone of what's going on in Judah. And chapter 5 really summarizes the first four chapters with a parable, which I think is beautiful. He, he gives this parable of a vineyard. And he says there's a king who owns the vineyard, and that king is God. And, and God comes to his vineyard, and he sees not what he's looking for, but something else. And so the question he's really getting at in these first five chapters of the book is, what does it look like for God's people to bear fruit? What, what is real fruit that he's looking for? So if you're taking notes today, let's first look at God's vineyard. Number one, the vineyard. Look at me at verse one. Verse 1, he begins the parable like this, Let me sing for my beloved, that's God, in my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. So Isaiah uses, he starts off with this common metaphor of a vineyard. Israel was often referred to as a vineyard, and right here, it, later on, it'll clarify that just in case people weren't paying attention, but it's a common metaphor for Israel. And God is saying, I've been doing all the work for my people. 
I've been the one who dug the ground. I've been the one who planted. I've been the one who's cared for it, who's watered it, who put up a watchtower to make sure there's no threats. I've been the one who built a fence around it and I built a hedge. I've been the one who's done all of this for you. And now that I've put in all the work, this total work of grace, I come to my vineyard and I want to see fruit from my labors. I want to see that there there is a product that comes out. And and look at what he says. It it says that that he's looking for grapes out of the vineyard. And down in verse 7, it tells you what the grapes are. It says he looked for justice and for righteousness. There's, There's two words. We've talked about this before in previous series we've done. Two words here that are key in the Old Testament and especially in Isaiah. You see them over and over and over again. Two primary Hebrew words for justice. Get this. Mishpat and Zedekah. Mishpat and Zedekah. Mishpat is is referring to equity. It's referring to treating people uh, fairly and and giving them what they uh, deserve, whether that's punishment, fair punishment, or fair provision. So Mishpat was, was referring to both the negative side of justice and the positive side of justice, right? It's this, this holistic view of, of fair treatment towards all people. And the Mishpat of Israel, we'll see as we go through Isaiah, was judged based on how they treated their most vulnerable people. How they treated the most vulnerable among their society. And so that's Mishpat. And then the second word is Zedekah. And Zedekah is is less about the rules of the society and more about the relationships. So Zedekah is is having right relationships. It's this interpersonal reality of justice that that it's one-to-one. It's not just high-level kind of things, but it's down on the ground level. And so Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke, he says this. He says, these two words are used together over three dozen times in the Old Testament. And he says that the two terms together give a holistic relational picture of justice. So that we see in the Old Testament that justice is right rules and it's right relationships. You catch that? You have to have both to have have biblical justice. It has to be the right rules and right relationships. And these, listen, these are the grapes that God was looking for. In other words, God was saying, my faithfulness to you requires a certain kind of fruit from you. It requires these grapes. Now, you might have heard of this before. It's called mile a minute, or, or sometimes it's called uh, the, the vine that ate the south. If you never heard of it, you, you may also have seen it because it's everywhere in Florida. It's called kudzu, I think is how you say it. But it, it's this vine that grows on everything. I mean, you'll see it on the highway, you'll see it out in the forest, you'll see it in your yard, on the bushes. If you're not careful, it'll take over. I mean, it's everywhere. It's, it's a vine that, that literally grows, listen to this, a foot a day. A foot a day. And so th- this, uh, what wasn't native to Florida or the South, it came from Japan in, in the 1800s, and it was, it was marketed as a, a way to kind of create some shade on your front porch in the South. You know, because often in the South, the older homes, we got these porches that you sit on and, and it kind of shades your porch. Well, everybody was buying them, everybody was planting them, and it turned into not just shade, but it took over your whole property. And by 1946, there was 3 million acres of kudzu. And then now today, they estimate there's somewhere around 8 million acres. It's taking over. 
it just continues to grow and grow and grow and grow. And I'm telling you that to say this, that's God's vision for his grace in his vineyard. His vision for his grace is that it would grow, that, that it would not stop, but it would keep going until it takes over, right? It's, it's designed, it's supposed to spread until it hits everything. And what, what I mean by that is, is God's grace doesn't just forgive us, it transforms us. Right? It's meant to take over every area of your life. It starts with forgiveness, but it never stays with forgiveness. It starts with forgiveness in the sense that you know, God is, is eager to forgive. He, he will forgive you of all your past, every terrible thought you've ever had, every action that you regret, every shameful moment with your kids, everything that you've ever felt. Man, this is horrific, and I don't know how God would ever forgive me of this. He says, I'm eager. I'm not just willing, I'm, I'm looking for it. I'm eager to forgive. I can't wait to forgive. But he doesn't want to start with forgiveness, or he doesn't want to stop with forgiveness. He wants to start there. He, he doesn't want to abandon you at, at wiping the, the slate clean. He wants to now transform your life. He, he wants to come into your life and, and take over every square inch. He, he desires growth, and, and He desires a specific kind of transformational growth. Here it is. Justice and righteousness. Both these right relationships and right rules. Justice is, is the transformation of rules. God's people in Israel, were, they were charged to create a culture of justice for the poor and marginalized among them. Isaiah chapter 1, he reminds them of this in the very beginning of the, of the book. In, in verse 17, he says, Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Right? Very, from the very beginning, Isaiah is setting the scene to say, this is what God desired for you. This is what God has called you to, that you would be a society that loved your neighbor in such a way that the most vulnerable were thought about and cared for and, and, and you were with them. And so in justice, there, there's a difference between equality and equity here. Notice this. E equality is saying that everyone has the same opportunities. Equity is different. Equity is the idea that not only do you have the same uh, opportunities, but you, you have your needed opportunities to thrive. You, you catch the difference? In, 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 let's take an example of uh, public education. So in public education, at least in Florida, I don't know how it works everywhere else, not every school gets the same funding. And so because not every school gets the same funding, equality would look like every school got the same. Right? And then that might be an improvement to what we have, but, but it wouldn't be biblical equity because equity is that you would have what you need. And so you would, biblical equity, biblical justice would look at it and it would say, well, because of the historical reality, because of the other injustices of racial injustice and economic injustice and all the things that have happened historically, there are certain communities that are marginalized that need more opportunity. And so biblical justice would say, I'm going to give more to this one because it's what they need, even though it's not the same. You catch the difference? This is what he's talking about. He's saying, I want you to give extra attention to the widow and the orphan. I want you to give extra attention to the poor and the marginalized. I want you to give extra attention. This is not about equality. This is about equity. You catch it? He's saying, this is mishpat. 
It's the right rules that create that kind of environment. But then he goes on and he says, it's not just those rules. Rules won't ultimately change things. He says, you also need righteousness, which has transformed relationships. You need zedekah. See, justice is more corporate, but, but righteousness is more personal. It's, it's on both levels. It's not an either-or argument. It's, it's both, that he wants both. And, and most people in our individualistic culture, I'd say, in America, we, we hear righteousness and we think about character. And that's good because it, it includes that. It means that. But he's specifically talking about more here. He, he's talking about more than just your personal character. He's talking about how your character interacts with your neighbors. You catch that? It, it's a relational righteousness where it's not just am I good with God am I am I growing in my relationship with God am I doing my devotions am I praying but how am I relating to my neighbor Jesus would say like this you can't claim to love God and not love your neighbor that that righteousness is shown in how we love that these interpersonal relationships and how we live those out is the vision that God has for His people. The thriving vineyard is that relational dynamic. So the fruit of character is shown with your neighbor. right? It'll show in how we bless those who can't bless us back. It'll show in how we see people who others ignore. It'll show in how we speak about our enemies, not just our friends. I mean, Jesus said... He said, look, you can love people who love you back. Anybody can do that. Even the pagans can do that. But, but the supernatural righteousness, the, the supernatural character that, that loves a neighbor different than you, that, that's a whole other kind of grape. That's what he's calling us to. That, that's the vision he's giving for the vineyard. Now listen, that's not what he finds when he comes, right? And this is the second point. Uh, there, there's another harvest in God's people that he finds when he comes. And this is the second, the grapes. Look at verse 2. It says, And he looked to ye- for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. So instead of good grapes, what we have here is what he says are wild grapes. Now that word wild in Hebrew, it, it, it has an interesting image that comes with it. It, it really means to... Um, to be sour or, or to have kind of this stench. So it, it was saying that, that the grapes were rotten grapes. They, they weren't good grapes. They had a stench that made you want to kind of push them away and say, I, I don't want to be around that. That's, that's disgusting. And then he gives what those grapes are, and there's an important word play here, right? He, he says in verse 7, he, he says, Instead of justice, there was bloodshed. Instead of righteousness, there's an outcry. In some of your Bibles, there'll be a little footnote that says those words sound similar. And here, here's what they sound like. I want you to hear it. Uh, they sound almost identical. Mishpat versus Mishpak, which is bloodshed. You hear it? Mishpat versus Mishpak. And then you have Zedekah versus Zayaka. They, they sound almost similar. They sound almost like you're talking about the same thing. But then when you get a little bit closer, you see... They're nothing alike. They couldn't be any more dissimilar. They, it's justice versus bloodshed. It's, it's righteousness versus the outcry of the people who are being taken advantage of. He's saying it's rotten fruit. You get a little bit closer and you see it's rotten. 
Last year, our family went uh, peach picking in Bartow. There's this peach farm that my wife found on Facebook or something. I don't know where she found this thing. But in Bartow, there's a peach farm. And they've got all the peach trees lined up in rows like you would as you're farming. And, and you get a basket as you show up and you pay for, I don't know, what, whatever you pay uh, for the basket. And then when you, when you walk down the aisle of the, of the trees, you just pick as you, as you want. What, whatever you pick, you pay for. And, and our kids are with us and our friends are there. And, and we had so much fun just kind of walking through it. And, and the kids were getting kind of the low-hanging fruit. And the adults were trying to get higher up. And everybody's looking for the same thing. Everybody's looking for what the lady told us at the front. You want a certain color, a certain size, and, and you want to make sure it feels a certain way so it's, it's ripe and ready to be picked. And so everybody's filling up their baskets, and we get home, and, and we've got this massive thing of, of peaches. And we're, we're making plans on the way home. We're going to make peach cobbler, and we're going to eat peaches for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and so many peaches. And then we're highly disappointed. We cut open the first peach, and it's rotten on the inside, but not only is it rotten, there's worms. The peach was moving. I'm looking at it, and it's moving on the inside. And I'm thinking, we paid a lot of money for these peaches. It better not be all of them. And I start cutting into the rest. More worms, more worms, more worms. They're all rotten. It looked on the outside like they were what we were looking for. But on the inside... You get a little bit closer, and it's rotten. This is what he's saying. And, and hear the heart of God in verse 4. What he says is he sees this in his people. He says, what more was there for my vineyard? Or what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? That's the question right there. Why? Why, why did it not yield the grapes I was looking for? Why are these wild, sour, stinky, stenching grapes? One word, greed. It was greed. See, the rest of the chapter in chapter 5 is a series of woes. And woe is, is a word that would, use, would be used in funerals. And, and the prophet is pronouncing these woes. Woe, 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 woe. And it's saying, I'm looking out at my people and I'm seeing all these terrible things about their condition. And he summarizes it in the first uh, woe in verse 8. He says, Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room. What he's saying there is he's, he's looking out on this, this prosperous time in Judah and he's noticing that the wealthy who, whose businesses are booming because of the war in the north, they're getting richer and they're buying house and house and land and land and he's joining them together. He says, until there's no more room. Room for who? The poor. He's saying now there's a housing crisis in Judah and everybody else is getting wealthier, but they are getting poorer. And so their success was at the expense of the poor. And he says, this is what makes it rotten. And woe after woe after woe is just another expression of their deep greed within them. See, greed is at the root of injustice. It's always at the root of injustice. And listen, Greek, or greed can, can look great on the outside. 
It can look like everything's working, everything's going well, your business is growing, your team is making their sales, the, uh, your, your leadership is getting more influence on Instagram. I mean, isn't that the American trifecta? Like, that's what we're always looking for, growth, success, and influence. That's it. That's what keeps social media driving all the time. Is everybody wants to be an influencer or be known by an influencer or have some kind of interaction with these people with influence. We love growth, success, and influence. And the church is no exception. We're not. We've bought into it. I mean, we believe that your success is what makes you a good church. Your growth is what makes you a good church. Your influence is what makes you a good church. So I want to be the most successful. I want to be the fastest growing. I want to be the one who, who has all the influence. I want to be at a place that, that is showing something. The assumption in Israel and in us is that affluence equals fruit. Affluence equals fruit. Now, of course, affluence is not evil in itself by any means. What, what Isaiah is pointing out is that their growth without justice is just greed. That's what it is. He, he doesn't have any problem with them having wealth. It's, it's how they gained their wealth. That it was at the expense of others. That their increase came at the decrease of others. Their, their excess came at everyone's loss. Their, their prosperity at the other's pain, right? It was greed. And greed starts in our hearts before it ever gets to our lives. And, and he says this in verse 21 in one of the other woes. He says, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. In other words, we're, we're insisting on our own autonomy. We're, we're insisting that I am the owner and the ruler of my life. I am the one that has to make sure everything works. And because I'm the owner, because I'm in charge, I have to trust in me. I have to make sure I provide. I have to make sure I can protect. I have to make sure I can do this and make it happen and, and go, go, go. And listen, greed, greed is just the fruit of, of fear. It's the fruit of a fearful heart that says, if if I don't take care of me by, by gaining and collecting and hoarding everything to myself, who's going to take care of me? If I don't take care of me, someone else is going to get it. Someone else is not going to think of me. Someone else is not going to care about me because I am the ruler and owner of my life. I'm the king of the vineyard. Do you, do you hear the fear? And, and, and I love, listen, I love that... that um, that, that God, His ownership, really transforms us. Listen to the old Heidelberg Catechism from centuries ago. It opens like this. It asks this question, what's your only comfort in life and death? What's your only comfort in life and death? Here's the answer it gives, that I am not my own. That I am not my own, but I belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. You could say it like this, greed can't own me if, if God owns me, right? I, if, if I'm owned by God, then, then greed can't own my heart. I can't be full of fear and always worried and always anxious and wondering how is this going to work out and how am I going to protect myself? No, because God is my owner. And my only comfort is not in what I can produce, but what He produces. And greed is, is saying, I'm... 
I'm going to live my life apart from him. I'm going to do what I can do to make my life work. And if he wants to help out along the way, that'd be great. But, but I've got it under control. My life is separate from his life. And that doesn't work. The, the only way you fight greed is with generosity. It's with generosity. Fruit requires that we put others first. Bruce Waltke again, he says this, he says, justice requires we disadvantage ourselves to advantage others. I love that. It requires that we lower ourselves to lift up others, that we decrease so that someone else can increase. But we must trust God. We have to trust that He will care for us better than we can care for ourselves because I'm not going to give up caring for myself if, if I don't trust that when I lay things down, He's going to pick them up. Trusting Him to provide that whatever we give up, trusting Him to provide whatever we lay down, trusting Him to provide that He would take care of us when we don't have the answers, this is the fruit of the gospel. That we would have a God who we trust as an owner. Trust Him. The good news is that we are not our own. We're not our own. But the even greater news is not what we can then trust Him to provide, but the one who ultimately provides in Himself. And there's a true and better vine. This is the last point, the vine. Look at verse 5. He ends the parable like this. He says, And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste and it shall be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. See, God is giving this warning to Israel, His vineyard. He's saying, look, if you're not producing fruit, this is what's going to happen. And, and He's telling them this because it's coming. And like I told you, the northern kingdom is already feeling the, the pressure from Assyria. And just down the road, Assyria is going to take over. They're going to invade and take the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. And then a couple hundred years later, in 586, uh, the, the southern kingdom is going to fall to Babylon. And they're going to be sieged and exiled. And all of God's people are going to be exiled out of the land. And the land, the vineyard, is going to become a wasteland. He's saying these, these days, these days of uh, affluent injustice are coming to an end. And a judgment is coming. But in this judgment, listen, in this judgment, there's a promise on the other end. And you hear this promise throughout chapter 1, especially in chapter 1, verse 27. He says it this way. He says, Zion shall be redeemed, listen, by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. There's those words again. It's all throughout the book, I'm telling you. Justice and righteousness, but this time it's not used to describe us. It's, it's not used to describe us redeeming ourselves through our works of justice or our works of righteousness. He says it about somebody else. He says that Zion one day will be redeemed by another one who will come. And he'll, he'll bring this out later throughout Isaiah. Another one who will come who will himself he, he will embody justice. He will himself live out righteousness perfectly. He himself will bear fruit for the Father in ways that we never could. And it would be Jesus. 
Jesus would lower himself to lift up others. Jesus would disadvantage himself for the advantage of others. And Jesus would say this about himself. He would say he's the true and better vine in John 15. He says this, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. Jesus is saying, I'm taking all your human failure, all your lack of fruit, all the stench that has happened because of your life. I'm taking it all upon myself and I'm going to bear fruit for you. I'm going to bear fruit of justice. I'm going to bear fruit of righteousness. All the the relationships that have been broken, I'm going to make them right. I'm going to heal them, but it's going to be in me. And the only way that you're going to be able to bear fruit is if you abide in me. That word abide means that you are remaining, you are making your home, you are settling in. He's saying this to his people. He's saying that your major sin, your major sin is not the justice or the righteousness that you're lacking. That that is the fruit. But at the core, the core is you were living apart from me. The core is in your greed, you were self-sufficient and isolated and thought you could do life on your own. And this is what's happened. But if you abide in me, there'll be a difference. There'll be fruit. See, greed lives apart from God, but grace lives abiding in God. And so justice grows from abiding in Jesus. It grows from abiding in Him and Him alone. There was a guy named Derek Redmond who uh, ran for the Great Britain's uh, Olympic team in 1992 in in the Olympics in Barcelona. And uh, he, he was running for their team, and, and he was expected to win the 400-meter sprint. That, that was what he was expected to do. But in the race, about a third in the race, his hamstring ruptured. And as soon as it ruptured, he just fell to the ground, and, and he starts weeping and rolling in agony. I mean, you could tell he's in so much pain. The rest of the runners just keep running the race, and he stops on the ground and just pauses. He can't do anything. He can't move anywhere. The cameras are all focused in on him. And after about you know, a few moments, he, he kind of gets himself up enough to try to hobble. And he's trying to hobble down the lane to the finish line. And right at that moment, there's a man who comes out of the stands, this middle-aged man who's wearing a white t-shirt and a baseball cap, and he somehow gets past the security guards. I don't know how this works, but he gets past the security guards onto the field or onto the, to the track, and he comes over to his side, and it's his father, Jim. And he, he wraps his arm around him, puts his shoulder under his shoulder, and he begins to walk with him. He begins to carry the weight that he couldn't put on his leg because of his hamstring being ruptured. He begins to walk with him step by step by step, and the crowd begins to cheer. It's this real emotional moment, and everybody's excited that he is with him, connected to him all the way to the finish line, doing for him what he couldn't do himself. That's Jesus. Jesus is saying, I'm the vine who, if you connect to me, I will carry you. I will carry you with the crown of thorns on my head. Right? He carried us with a body stripped naked in shame. He carried us with a cross on his back. He carried us with shouts of ridicule. He carried us with nails in his hands and feet. He carried us with a spear in his side. He carried us with God's wrath poured out on him. He carried us for our greedy injustice. He carried us so that we could be connected to him. He carried us so that we could abide 
so that we could be connected, so that we could bear fruit, so that we could have life in us again. See, a church abiding in Jesus bears the fruit of justice and righteousness. It's a church of fruitfulness. Abiding in Jesus is how we grow. Abiding in Jesus is how grace takes over in us. Abiding in Jesus is how God's promises go from the future to the present in us now. So that we bear fruit in keeping with repentance. We bear fruit of equity for the marginalized. We bear fruit of care for the poor. We bear fruit for love of our neighbor. We bear fruit of hope for the hopeless. We bear fruit only in Him. Only in Him. And so as we close, I want to ask, are you abiding in Him? Are you abiding in Jesus? Because without Jesus, we can do nothing. But with Him, He can do everything. He can do it in us. He, he can bear fruit that we can't bear. He can work in us so that we're a church that, that knows Him and loves Him and not only knows Him and loves Him, but knows and loves the people around us. That we become a church that, that God looks at and He sees His vineyard and He says, I see the fruit that I'm looking for. I see relationships that are thriving. I see a community that cares for one another. I see people who long to see my kingdom come from heaven to earth. But it's because they're abiding. It's because they're connected to me. And if you're here today and you find yourself looking at your life and you say, I'm not bearing any fruit. I'm not bearing fruit like I would like to. And, and, and I, I realize that I'm, I'm not abiding. Jesus is inviting you in. He, he's saying to anyone, all of us, he's saying, look, it's real simple. You come to me and you just remain. It's not going to be quick. It's not going to be easy, but it is simple. It, it takes time. It takes years and decades for God to bear fruit in us that he wants to bear. But it is simple. Abide. Abide in me, and I will, that's his promise, I will bear fruit. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for that promise. We thank you that you are uh, the one who goes before us as the vine who bore perfect fruit. You are the true and better vine, and we are just the branches. We are just offshoots, getting our life from you, bearing fruit because you have gone before us. And so we ask for your nutrients. We ask that your Holy Spirit would care for us, water us, help us to flourish as we abide in you. Lord, I pray for people today who feel disconnected from you and, and have gone through a season where you feel like there's no fruit. And, and I pray, Lord, that you would encourage, that you would bring comfort, that you would remind us of the good promise that wherever we find ourselves, there's always the opportunity to come. There's always the opportunity to finally stop and slow down and hear the music that's playing to say, I'm here for you. I'm your owner. I'm your king. I'm the one who loves you and cares for you and provides for you and protects you. And God, I pray that you would give us by your spirit the faith, the obedience to step out and to do that, to take you up on your word and abide. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.